You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom. I read those words of St. Paul a long time ago, and I'll confess they inoculated me against certain kinds of inquiry when it comes to his letters. St. Paul must not have been an orator the way that we think of orators because he didn't rely on eloquence when he spoke. His education, therefore, must have been irrelevant to his epistles, and certainly we won't learn anything by attending to the rhetorical form when we take on his writings. But here's some good news for you listeners. Ben Witherington and Jason Myers are here to get those ideas off the table and supply us with better ways of understanding not only Paul's letters, but so much of the New Testament. The second edition of their book, New Testament Rhetoric, demonstrates not only that Paul, but also all sorts of New Testament writers exhibit familiarity with and formation through ancient canons of rhetoric, and Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome them to the show. Jason and Ben, thank you for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Jason, the book's first couple chapters focus on the educational possibilities that would have opened up for several New Testament figures, but especially for Paul. Mm -hmm. What reasons do you offer for why Paul was exceptional, not only in the sense of divine mission, but also Mm -hmm. in terms of rhetorical education? Yeah, thanks for that great question. Um, It's one of the things that often confuses me when people uh, talk about Paul and Reddick is how much they want to kind of lower his educational uh, ability, uh, which I think is uh, an interesting claim to make. Um, I think the first thing that I usually try to point out is that when you um, begin to understand uh, the rates of literacy in the ancient world, um, and you can have a debate on low and high numbers, let's say roughly 10% of the ancient world, um, we're already starting um at a different place when we meet a person with 13 letters attached to his name um and i think it's worth recognizing that whatever we want to say about paul um he's already in the top 10 percent uh, of the ancient world uh just on his ability to read let alone write uh and so i think starting that conversation there helps shake us out of um the possibility that any of us could maybe write a book right we all have a word processor we all have access to amazon publishing Um, not so much in the ancient world. And so Paul actually stands out as quite a formidable figure on that account. Um, I think the other piece I usually like to point out is that Paul comes from uh, the city of Tarsus, uh, as he mentioned, as is mentioned in the book of Acts. And this is one of the leading educational centers uh, in the ancient world. Um, Strabo, the geographer, tells us that um, often people would reflect on Tarsus for its educational uh, abil- uh, possibilities that were there. And so I think when you combine, at least at minimum, those two features, I think it really starts the conversation off in a different in a different place. And, and Ben, if we can turn towards some of Paul's uh, famous passages where he denies eloquence, I mean, are these uh, of the same genus, at least, of Socrates saying that he knows nothing? Is this a, a pretty standard approach that people take before they dazzle us with their wisdom? It's the way modern lawyers speak, you know? I mean, it's it's pretty typical, really. Not that I'm all that good at running trials, however, you know. But, but actually, it, what's happening here is that Paul lives at a time um, where sophistic rhetoric, that is, uh, words full of sound and fury but signifying little or nothing, were all too common amongst orators that you might run across in a forum or an agora. And so 
there's a whole tradition of anti-sophistic rhetoric of not not saying that they're not using rhetoric what they're saying is what i'm doing is not mere verbal eloquence and i'm not interested in doing mere verbal eloquence to dazzle you with my vocabulary so uh, you know that sort of passage uh, indicates i'm doing substantive rhetoric not primarily about form, primarily about substance. Uh, and so don't lump me into the category of Publius down in the Agora, who has uh, recently given an eloquent discourse on the importance of the flea. Right, right. That makes sense. That makes real good sense. Um, ben, we're going to move fast today. And listeners, you can get more out of what you're hearing when you get a copy of this book and read it carefully. And guys, they're going to, I promise you that. But I want to turn towards Luke Acts, the text that recently on this show, Dom Crossan insisted is a single text copied onto two scrolls. But my question for you has to do with a phrase in Luke 1, namely an orderly account. So what would that phrase, orderly account, have meant to rhetorically educated auditors and later readers? Well, if we're talking about writing history, it would mean one thing. If we're talking about a discourse, it would mean something else. Uh, what Luke is suggesting is that the account he's going to give to Theophilus is going to make sense. There, there's a structure, there's an order to it, there's a going up to Jerusalem structure in the gospel and from Jerusalem to Rome structure in Acts. And so th that that's the kind of thing he means by an orderly account. But if we're dealing with, say, Romans or First Corinthians, well, that's a different story because there is a pattern that any good rhetorician would follow and the audience would already know. I mean, they would be anticipating, just like if we went to a play, we would expect three acts, you know. And, uh, well, if if you go to a discourse in the first century AD, you would expect a preamble you would expect a, a narration of relevant facts, and then you would expect a series of arguments leading up to an emotional harangue at the end, so the call to peroration. And, and that's the typical form that all of those kind of discourses took. Now, the thing is that Paul's letters are what he would have said if he was there, but he can't be there. So what he's done is he's written down the discourse uh, or had it written down by somebody like, uh, you know, Tertius mentioned in Romans 16 uh, and handed it off to one of his co-workers like a Timothy or Titus who already knew what was on the document. And then they would go and read it out orally to, to the audience in Corinth or wherever. So there's a definite structure to it. And uh, within that structure, the positive arguments would come first, negative arguments about refuting something they may have thought or raised or objected to would come later in the discourse. So there is a, a even a substructure to all of this. And, and maybe the most important part is you need to use your strongest arguments first. <laughs> so, you know, fire your silver bullet up front and then work from there. Um, is kind of the rhetorical rule that Paul usually follows. And Jason, I mean, when we're talking about this, I mean, you know, one thing that occurs to me is that it is in some ways the opposite of what we think of when we think of modern 
philosophical lectures because uh, when I think of the difference between, for instance, uh, Hegel's phenomenology of spirit versus Hegel's lectures, um, what I what I tend to think of is you know those lectures are basically uh, far more readable because people sitting in the house had to actually understand them, even though they yep. were sort of uh, diluted or you know. Hmm. Um, they were his books made hospitable, I guess, would be the mm. phrase I would use. Uh, mm. But I mean, what you guys argue is that, you know, Paul's letters moved the other direction. They were first and foremost oratory that later mm. got written down. Yeah, I think that reverses some of the trends that we think of. But I think going back to some of our earlier conversations, I think that's the difference between um, an oral culture and a print culture, right? Um, that if we want someone to know something, we might say, let me send you a document. Let me send you this article that I wrote, right? That's how we're going to communicate our ideas to someone. Um, again, in the ancient world, if you throw down a book in front of someone or a scroll or some sort of um, papyrus, you know, one out of 10 people are going to be able to pick that up and go, okay, I get, I get what you're saying, Paul. Um, so that's just not a very uh, effective communication strategy. So, yeah, I think what Paul is doing is his preaching um, in those public places are going to be much more uh, accessible. Um, and then when he goes to write, it's, of course, what he would have said in person. Um, but I think one of the things that we miss about the New Testament documents is that these are well-polished documents. These aren't just live processing. Um, this isn't, um, you know, a conscience stream of Paul. He's thought this through and he's thought about what makes the most sense in terms of a logical argument. Um, these aren't just things he's just kind of whipping off uh, off the cuff. Um, I mean, even at a practical level of getting a scribe, getting the papyrus, getting the, the ink, right? So much more thought goes into this process than we imagine because we just live in a very different media culture um, that is far easier to do and, and make mistakes and go, oh, we don't like that draft. Just delete, delete, delete. You know, we didn't anything. We just wasted time. Um, and and so in fact, we have to teach our young to be cautious about what they write and put yep. out into the world online. I mean, which yeah. I, I, I often tell my own students that is a caution that would have been uh, it wouldn't have been counterintuitive. It would have been completely unintelligible even 800 years ago, much less 2000 years ago. Yeah, not, not, it's very recent history that that would be something that you begin to think about with this kind of, you know, every thought we have, we can put out there. Um, and in writing. And writing, yeah, for, for posterity's sake. <laughs> yep. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, Jason, I, I want to pause just a moment because I'm curious about this. Mm -hmm. This book occupies some strange territory relative to what I think of as sort of the orthodoxies of SBL flavored New Testament studies. Uh, mm -hmm. On one hand, without apology, you two attribute epistles to Paul and Peter that would earn me a 30-minute lecture if I dared to say that Paul or Peter wrote them around some of my biblical studies friends. And yet, mm -hmm. you also don't hesitate to note differences between accounts in the New Testament documents, such as, you know, when Paul in Acts 13 links the text of Psalm 2, this day I've begotten you, and so on and so forth, mm -hmm. to the resurrection and not the baptism of Jesus. So I'm I'm curious. I want to hear the story from both of you. Uh, in this book's public career, in its first and its second edition, how have the scholarly guilds received it? Yeah, the issue of Pauline authorship, of course, is one that's been uh, debated, and you know I think there's good reasons for assuming you know that Paul did write these documents when we account for various you know issues and assumptions that have held sway over the last couple centuries within New Testament studies. Um, as you mentioned, you know, one of the big ones is the, you know, Paul of uh, Acts versus the Paul of his letters. 
And, you know, New Testament studies has really moved from some of those, in some ways, anti-Jewish readings uh, of Luke, where where Paul just comes off as too Jewish, right, in, 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 the, in the book of Acts. Well, fast forward, you know, 50, 60 years, and some of those assumptions have been questioned. Um, I think, you know, as we look at issues like scribes and different styles, I think there's, you know, different reasons why we can argue with a kind of full-throated defense that we think Paul Paul wrote these. I'll let Ben add more on that. Yeah, yeah. Ben, I mean, one of my pet peeves, I'll confess, and, and this is New Testament studies people. Actually, not really them. It's more people who have read a book or two of New Testament studies. They'll say, the scholarship says, and then they'll tell me yeah. that, you know, Paul couldn't have written Colossians. Uh, right. You guys don't seem concerned by that. I mean, uh, how again, how has that been received in the Guild? Well, first of all, I'd say there's a spectrum of opinion uh, within the SBL. I mean, you know, when the SBL happens, 8,000 people show up. <laughs> and... and so there's a spectrum from far left end of the spectrum to the far right end of the spectrum and somewhere in between. And uh, not all of those people have their hair on fire. So, uh, you know, the, the thing, here's what's interesting about this. If you look at British scholarship, um, 18th, 19th into the 20th century, British uh, biblical scholarship was done by people who'd been trained in the classics, okay? And uh, what happened in America is, yes, we did the classics. I mean, I did three years of Latin before I got out of high school. But uh, the fact is that most people educated uh, in modernity, say, since I was born in the 1950s, um, have not had a classical education because it wasn't required. It wasn't required in public schools. It wasn't required in college, et cetera, right? So, of course, they're not going to read Paul uh, in light of uh, classical training or uh, classical rhetoric. They're just not going to read Paul that way because they've never learned it that way. But, I mean, the ancient world was a rhetoric-saturated culture. So, I'll tell you a funny story. I was in Tübingen in Germany giving lectures. And uh, what happened in German education was... That after World War One, uh, the German education stopped requiring people to do classics as part of their uh, Habilitationsschrift. Okay, you didn't have to do this; you could do this. But what happened as a result of that is you have a whole generation of scholars like Bultmann and Debalius and whatnot who were not trained in the classics, Greek or Roman classics. Okay, and they and lo and behold, what happened? nature abhors a vacuum, they invent form criticism, right? A very different way to look at these documents. So when I went and gave this lecture in Tübingen, there was one really ancient professor, Otto Betz, retired, but he was old enough that he had been trained in the classics when he studied Paul in the early 1920s in Berlin. And, and, you know, so I give this lecture on the rhetorical structure of 1 Corinthians, and the whole classics department of Tubigan was there. And they were all going, yeah, das ist recht. Yes, absolutely. Hooray. Finally, a New Testament scholar that recognizes that Paul's using rhetoric. And Otto Betz is going, Gott in Himmel, do we must re relearn all the classics in order to understand Paul? And I'm saying, yeah. That's what you need to do if you want to understand First Corinthians. And so, 
it's it's been a sea change in modern Western education. And we're now only just getting back to reading these texts the way the early church fathers did. They all read Paul's letters rhetorically. People like Chrysostom, Melanchthon did a whole rhetorical commentary on Paul's letter to the Romans. I mean, up until modernity, that was the way to read Paul's letters. So it's it's not a new discipline. And the interesting thing is, this has been very well received in the guild by people that are, you know, liberal, moderate, conservative, who, but who know something about the classics. They know that this is a valid way to read Paul. Yeah, I, I remember, uh, and this actually reminds me of a uh, Shakespeare class that I was in in graduate school where uh, my dissertation director, Fran Teague, you know, read to us from uh, Ben Johnson's poem about Shakespeare from the first folio, where he says uh, he had small Latin and less Greek. And uh, she said, remember that uh, Ben Johnson was an Erasmus level classicist. And so compared to him, yeah, Shakespeare didn't have a whole lot of classics, but Will Shakespeare could run circles out around anyone in this room in Latin or Greek. Don't be, don't be fooled by Ben Johnson's poem. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and Jason, other, oh, go ahead, other, Ben. Sorry. Well, one other thing to be said is that a good rhetorician could vary the style of what he was saying or writing according to the audience. According to like a good preacher would do that with the audience today. And so the fact that we have different rhetorical styles, like, for example, Ephesians is epideictic rhetoric of an Asiatic sort, uh, not so much Romans or First Corinthians. Well, a good rhetorician could vary the style of what he's doing, according to the audience. This doesn't mean that somebody else wrote it. <laughs> this means that this was a skilled rhetorician. Well, let's talk about those for a moment, because, I mean, you know, you're you're bringing up categories from uh, Aristotle's rhetoric. He divides oratory into three kinds, uh, depending on the time with which the Logos concerns itself. Forensic rhetoric aims at the past and deliberate re deliberative, pardon me, rhetoric, the future and epideictic rhetoric, the ongoing present. So, Jason, these uh, rhetorical divisions undergo some pretty radical changes when the city-states of Athens and Sparta and Corinth give way to Alexander's and Seleucus's and Caesar's empires. But in the New Testament period, they take on a new kind of life. Talk a little bit about the history of those three kinds of rhetoric uh, as we move through those historical moments. Yeah, so you're going to find a lot of overlap and similarities uh, alongside that change because obviously everything's going back to Aristotle. They're they're interacting with that and they're making their mod modifications as they go along. But I would, I would argue that the two big pieces, um, one, the Romans really wanted to be the Greeks. Um, I think they looked to them right for culture at, at that level, um, and so they are really retrieving a lot of that, not just in religion but also in in rhetoric. Um, you know, there's this great debate within the classics of who really conquered who. Um, you know, the Romans may have had the more powerful military, but from a cultural standpoint, um, you know, it's, it's it's a Greek way of life, um, albeit with modif modifications. Um, so that that's one piece. And then I think the other piece is as the Roman Empire expands, they have a pretty interesting dilemma on their hands and that they're not a city state anymore, right? They're 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 ruling vast territories. And so this idea of persuading people to to go a certain direction 
uh, becomes even more paramount, right? How do you keep the whole system together? Well, rhetoric is right at the center of that then. How are you going to persuade all these groups that we should be going this way? Obviously, they also have the Roman army, on the other hand, which helps for persuasion. Um, but I think it's this retrieval of rhetoric in the sense of it, it's working as they're as they're building and growing. Yeah, the Ben, other, follow oh sorry, Ben, following yeah, up on I, I that. I mean the, the other part of that is is this. Christianity is the first genuinely evangelistic religion in that whole Greco-Roman world and Judean world, okay? Mm -hmm. I mean, Judaism was not, by and large, a missionary evangelistic religion. You could become a Jew, go through a proselyte procedure and do that. It's a sociological process. But A, ancient people didn't basically believe in conversion, radical change in adult person's orientation in life. And B, none of those religions were evangelistic by nature. I mean, the other one that became that way was kind of the imperial cult. But Christianity had to rely on convincing people to join the Jesus movement. And so what were the tools readily at hand to do that? Well, persuasion is involved. You you don't sort of turn on the vacuum cleaner and suck them into the kingdom of God. You've got to persuade them. And so, I mean, it, it was an obvious tool for uh, missionary work all across the Greco-Roman Empire. And luckily, they're using forms that go all the way back to the ecclesia, to the democratic assemblies in Athens. So in the Greek-speaking world, which was everywhere, they already knew something of what this was and where it was coming from. Well, I've got a question about the history of it that uh, I've wondered about, but I haven't had the time to research it. So I want to bounce it off you too. Um, I know that when I read modern histories of rhetoric, they make a lot of the change from Hellenic to Hellenistic rhetoric uh, that, you know, when locally governed police uh, give way to continent spanning empires mm -hmm that uh, rhetoric becomes, relatively speaking, less important. Do these modern histories with our preference for democracy make too much of that shift? Or is that basically right, that, that rhetoric really does diminish uh, once Alexander is on the warpath? Well, it depends on what subculture you're talking about. Again, if you're talking about a new religion like the Jesus movement and the, the rise of Christianity, Within that subculture, it's all important. You've got to persuade people not only to convert, you've got to persuade people to behave in certain ways, believe in only one God. I mean, there's a lot of persuasion going on here in a polytheistic environment. So that, that's one thing. At the political level, of course, it's top down. But what's interesting about that is that even the emperor feels he needs to put up inscriptions all over the empire uh, for claiming his great accomplishments for the people that he's now ruling. That's supposed to be persuasion or at least pacification of, mm -hmm. of these people that have now been conquered. And so, uh, you know, it depends on what subgroup we're talking about and what level uh, it's important. Uh, but certainly within the Christian movement, you have to persuade people. And I would also add that it depends on where we're at, you know, if we're in Rome or from one of the provinces, you know, they're all, there, there isn't this flat level of Roman rule. 
um, they have kind of a multi-pronged approach to to various places and spaces. Um, and then I think at least on a micro level, the, the city is still functioning. Um, the Romans are perhaps ruling, but on, on the ground, you still have local leaders that have to convince the people that they're at least supposed to keep pacified, <laughs> that they should still support them in A, B, C, or D. And that goes from everything from, you know, building this this wall to redoing the aqueducts to, you know, these small things that might not be, you know, politically uh, fraught. Um, just the nature of a of business in, in a city uh, is persuasive, um, especially around those, those pieces. So I'd add it depends on what issues we're also talking about. But I think rhetoric stays through because you largely have a culture um, that is not um, using, uh, well, is not literate, right? And so they're, they're using that for for a, a vast amount of things. And I know Ben has talked about this before, but even entertainment, right? Um, that is largely rhetorical as well. So even things we wouldn't necessarily consider, um, I still think you see that there throughout that long that long view. Very good. Well, I want to turn sort towards some uh, particular New Testament texts and. Uh, the chapters, you know, on the uh, epistles especially present alternative outlines of the book. First, those informed by, you know, sometimes uh, concerns exclusive of rhetoric or concerns that are not uh, primarily rhetorical, and then outlines that keep rhetoric in mind and at the center. And Ben, uh, when you guys outline Romans, uh, I'll confess that I was surprised that the most important pivot doesn't occur at the therefore in Romans 12, 1, where I was always taught that uh, the book of Romans pivots. Um, what is a better and more rhetorically informed way to think about the organization of the epistle to the Romans? Well, first of all, this is a document written to an audience that's not a group of Paul's converts by and large. In fact, he's going to mention all of his friends at the very end in the Hallmark card in Romans 16, just to let people in Rome know, yeah, I do know some people that are there, okay? But but he's writing to an audience that he didn't convert by and large. So that, that really shapes what's going on uh, in that. And you can even see that in Romans 1, where he says, I want to come and give you a blessing. Oh, what I really mean is I want us to come and share ideas with one another. You know, so he's operating in a different way with Romans than he does with First Corinthians, for example. That's that's very clear. So what he's trying to do is, in a sense, outline his gospel, the positive case for his gospel that that is for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. And always in his mind is this fact that Romans in general are pretty famously anti-Semitic. And so it would be natural for Gentiles to assume in Rome that have become followers of Jesus that, you know, we are the top dogs, obviously, in culture and why not in religion as well. And didn't some of those Jewish Christian leaders get thrown out of town by the Emperor Claudius not long ago for, for being obnoxious about Jesus, this, that, and the other? So what he's got to do here is make clear that God has not reneged on his promises to Israel. But the way to do that is to present his positive case in Romans 1 through 8 of this is the gospel for Jew and Gentile alike because, frankly, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we're, we're all on sort of level ground in regard to those sorts of things. And then in Romans 9 through 11, 
he's going to uh, unmask anti-Semitism and make clear that God is not finished with Israel yet. And, and, and that's, that's so crucial. That's the bone of contention that he's most worried about before he gets to Rome and talks to Jews and Gentiles. And what he wants is that he doesn't want Jewish Christians to keep meeting just with Jewish Christians or Gentile Christians to keep meeting with just Gentiles. He wants the body of Christ to be more together, both Jew and Gentile united in Christ. And so he's laying the groundwork for that before he ever, ever gets there. And then in 12 through 16, he's going to walk through some of the ethical principles that, uh, you know, are natural developments out of the theology that we see in Romans 1 through 11. And, and they're, why they're important. Present yourself as a living sacrifice, etc. And maybe the most interesting part about that is that's where he introduces some of the teaching of Jesus some of the ethical teaching of Jesus in Romans 12 and Romans 13 and on down that way. And so he's dealing with what are the practical implications of what I've said in the first 11 chapters of Romans. It is a very carefully thought out document and, and laid out very carefully. It's not a surprise that, uh, you know, since that time, people have thought, well, this is his magnum opus it's really a remarkable document yeah i think the piece i would add to that you know that i'm sure some of the readers understand uh, some of the listeners to the podcast understand but you know these documents are written in the scriptio continuum they don't come with chapters and verses they don't come with divisions and so anytime we outline one of the letters we are we are all kind of you know doing a great hypothesis i think where ben and i have landed and certainly ben and leading that is saying you know, in, in regards to something like epistolary theory, we just think there's a lot more nuance that can happen with rhetorical theory that seems to be obviously more in vogue in the first century than epistolary theory might be able to outline and say, well, there's a intro, there's a body middle, and then a conclusion. Um, we are just of the opinion that why don't we take something that's been well thought out through the first century, these rhetorical categories, and begin to read the letter in new ways with some of these more nuanced in particular categories and see what comes out of it. And I think that's where there's been a lot of fruit of saying, okay, when we get to Romans 9 through 11, the, the tone shifts. Um, there's something different going on here. And, oh, look, there's a rhetorical category called a refutatio where you take on your you know opponent's arguments. And it's by doing that kind of comparative work that we go, we can say a lot more uh, about what Paul is doing in certain sections. We might not always know why, uh, at least we know what should be going on in those sections by kind of bringing these domains uh, together. So when we outline, people may, and you can line up the Roman com Romans commentaries, and is it 1 through 4, 5 through 8, 9 through 11, 12 through 16, right? And each each interpreter has their main kind of, well, this is the real argument of Romans. Um, but I think rhetoric comes in to help us see the overall arc of that um, argumentation. Very good. The Very other good. thing, the the other thing to be said about this that we we really really need to take into account it is that uh, Paul is is swimming upstream in some regards because he's not the apostle for those who have become followers of Christ in Rome by and large. So in a sense, he can't just. Uh, lambast them for this that and the other. he has to be very careful 
how how he does this. And I would just stress that there were no epistolary handbooks before Pseudo-Labanius in the second and third centuries AD. Man, do you have rhetorical handbooks all the way back to Aristotle and even before Aristotle. So if it was anything that was going to shape these documents on the basis of previous education, the essence of ancient education was rhetoric. It was not epistolary theory. Uh, in fact, there was even a, a short uh, lecture that was given in the Progymnasmata on how to form a letter in a rhetorical fashion. So, so, so the lead dog is the rhetoric. The tail that's being wagged is epistolary theory. And, uh, and, and there was no category in antiquity of body middle. I mean, that just doesn't exist. That's a modern category imposed on Paul's letters. And listeners, just to add a little bit to that, I mean, one of the reasons we know that there are uh, pre-Aristotelian rhetorical ma uh, manuals is that in the rhetoric, Aristotle says, now I'm going to do what those other manuals don't do. So, I, you know, uh, that's not a matter of speculation. That's, uh, that's Aristotle saying, yeah, you've read those other manuals, but now we're going to do it right, which is what Aristotle does with every subject matter, of course. But, you know. Absolutely. He's got opinions. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Jason, I want to zoom in on Romans before we uh, depart and head for the prison epistles. Uh, I've got a good friend. He's a Bible professor. I'm an English professor. And he and I have been litigating Romans 7 for years. Uh, so I was a little bit disappointed to see that uh, you two are uh, partisans of Mark's and that uh, you three all see Romans 7 not as a meditation on living in an already not yet state of being that complicates things all the way down to one soul. But instead... Uh, Romans 7, you read as a rhetorical impersonation. This is your episode, not mine. So uh, briefly enough that our listeners will still read your book. Don't, don't give away all your best stuff. What's the case for reading Romans 7 as impersonation instead of as existential reflection? Yeah, I think my kind of turn on this actually came from studying with Ben uh, when I was a student and seeing just what it, what is Romans 7 saying. Um, and I think it reveals a lot about the theology of the interpreter. I'll just put it that way, uh, what they expect in the Christian life. Yeah, I can agree course, with that. <laughs> yeah, you know, in our, our theological uh, denominations, right, they they part ways on this. And it's just, it's okay to say that. Uh, but I think it is interesting when we, when we read this in light of the work of the Spirit, um, what we see. And actually, Ben and I were headed to uh, India in 2015 to do some teaching on Paul. And I was tasked with the role of the Spirit in, in Paul. And I'd come along thinking, you know, you know, I think this is about, you know, not uh, not a Christian, not someone who, um, it's not Paul, it's not his autobiography. Um, and so I did a little bit of work on the role of the Spirit in Romans. And what's really fascinating is if you count up the number of times Paul refers to the Spirit as in the Holy Spirit, it makes a couple um, of occurrences in the early part of the letter, maybe once or twice. Um, it's entirely absent in chapter 7. And then it explodes in chapter eight. You get like over 12, 12, 13, 14 references to the spirit. Um, and as you realize what Paul is doing in Romans five through eight, where he's contrasting uh, in Adam and in Christ, uh, to me, it becomes pretty clear that the spirit is on one side of that conversation. And of course, for Paul to be a Christian is to have the spirit and to have the spirit is to be a Christian and vice versa. Uh, and so that was kind of a key for me that really unlocked uh, or maybe deconstructed <laughs> uh, Romans seven as being something of a Christian's experience. And as I've taught on that over the last 
uh, I guess, almost decade or so. Um, you know, I think it's helpful as we think about this even pastorally to say, you know, Paul calls us by a work of the Spirit to a great new creation. Um, and although Romans 7 may bear out some similarities to our lives at various times and places, um, that Paul is calling us higher. Um, and I don't think he does so without grace, um, but I think it's it's accurate to say, I think what Paul sees is that the Spirit really does change the nature of the game uh, for any would-be Jesus follower, and that their lives have radically changed as well. And the other thing to say about impersonation is that there are signals that that's mm -hmm. what's happening. And um, I mean, if you look at the very beginning of Romans 7, 1 through 4, there's this business about the woman under the law of the husband. And then there's verses 5 and 6, where he says, we were like this then, and now we're like this. We were like this then, and now we're like this. Well, Romans 7, beginning with verse 7, and continuing through Romans 7, is going to be, this is how we were. <laughs> And Romans 8, 1 and following is going to be, this is how we are led by the Spirit of God. I mean, that 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 signal would have been picked up. And just to be sure that the audience got that, normally in an impersonation, there would be a change of tone of voice, which, of course, you can't tell from reading a flat text today, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I mean, but it would be dramatic because in, in Romans 7, 7 through 13, We've got present tense verses. It's Adam telling his own story. And the voice would change. It would be, you know, in fact, here's the way it was with me. I existed before there were any laws. And then there was this problem with sin, you know, and uh, and the audience. Would Adam know, was from the Bronx, as it turns out. As it, Yeah, he was the godfather. Right? <laughs> you know, uh, Sin made an offer I couldn't refuse, you know, and so, yeah, um, so impersonation, uh, the, the other rule that's being followed is that the last historically named person needs to be the impersonation in what follows. Well, the last historically named person is Adam at the end of Romans 5. And boom, that's what you're going to get in Romans 7, 7 to 13. And then 14 through 25 is all those who are in Adam, but not yet in Christ. What is their condition? So, uh, you know, from a rhetorical point of view, it sure makes a lot better sense. It doesn't hurt that from my point of view, it can, you know, it comports very nicely with Wesleyan theology, but okay. Yep, Mark also is a Wesleyan. I, I, whether that's coincidental or not, I'll leave that to the listeners. Ben, I want to turn to the prison epistles. And when you look at the rhetoric there, you note that the Roman Empire doesn't have prisons in the sense that the United States of America or other modern nation states have prisons. What would it have meant for Paul and Peter and other New Testament figures to have been imprisoned? Well, uh, I call them the captivity epistles because Paul's not in jail. He's under house arrest, whether we're in Caesarea Maritima or in Rome uh, uh, until the very end. And just before somebody's going to be executed, they're actually not in a prison. And here's the interesting thing. I mean, Romans had a lot of ways of punishing you. None of them involved long incarceration in a prison. None of them. We use that overwhelmingly to punish mm -hmm. people. But in Rome, there was uh, exile to an island. 
exile within an island under supervision. There was a confiscation of property. There was a physical punishment, like cutting off a hand if you were a repeat thief. You know, mm -hmm. there, there could be execution. There were five things that could happen to you, none of which was spend a lot of time in jail. Mm -hmm. None of them. That was not a Roman way to deal with a problem. And so I would say, first of all, let's call them the captivity epistles. That's what they are. Uh, Paul has access to friends. Uh, he may, and, and here's the interesting thing. The word desmos, which is sometimes translated prison, the most basic meaning of this word is chains, not prison, chains. So he may well have been chained to a centurion. He had a captive audience. Well, Publius, let me tell you again today about the gospel. So the, Rome, these are the Praetorian guards in Philippians yeah, then. Exactly, exactly. And so uh, these are the captivity epistles. And because Paul is a Roman settled, uh, citizen, he has good hope that what's going to happen is he's going to be released. And in fact, he, he says as much in, at a couple of places in these captivity epistles. And um, the rule is that if you're going to make a complaint against a Roman citizen and he appeals to the emperor, then by golly, you've got to get on a boat and go to Rome and make your accusation in person and bring witnesses. Hello, mm -hmm. bring witnesses. Well, that didn't happen. So I think it's pretty clear that he was captive for a period of time and then released before the fire in Rome, somewhere around 62 or so, and had an ongoing uh, into his ministry after that. So those letters are important, but Paul's not in jail anywhere. Yeah, I think it says a lot, you know, as we as we teach through this, as I teach at an undergraduate level, um, you know, Romans had, you know, very interesting views and reasons why they wouldn't do long term incarceration. Sometimes they would build a little barrack with the army and you'd be, you know, kept there, but you're gonna be moving with them um, to wherever you're gonna go for your trial, um, was that the Romans thought that long term incarceration was actually inhumane. <laughs> and this comes from the same culture that was, you know, brutally crucifying people. Uh, but I always mentioned in class, it'd be interesting if they came to us in some sort of really cool time machine, they would look around and go, you guys are, this is inhumane to treat other human beings like this. You might as well just, it sounds cruel, but end the life because that's that's not a life worth living. Um, and so they were like, let's just jump to the point or you have a beating and you kind of go about your merry way. Um, but this idea of uh, kind of putting people away and throwing away the key forever um, it's worth a conversation on what is what is humane in that um, as we reflect on our own kind of culture as well. Right, right. Well, Jason, the uh, chapter on the, uh, and, and I've already forgotten what phrase Ben used, the, uh, the captivity epistles, that's the yes. phrase, uh, also helped me connect two zones of my own learning in ways that I should have seen, but I didn't. So thank you for that. Uh, ben already mentioned uh, Asiatic rhetoric. And uh, of course, in Cicero, uh, mm. Asiatic's, uh, opposite is always Attic rhetoric. Mm. Um, right. so talk a little bit about that Asiatic rhetoric, Jason, and how it contributes to your conclusions about, uh, you know, why we can still say without crossing our fingers that Paul very well might've written these letters. Yeah. I think when we look at that kind of destination of Ephesus or, you know, fill in the blank where the manuscripts have the blank, that, that region there is that we're right in the heart of where we might expect this to be kind of flourishing. Um, and we see that in a couple of ways in the letter, the, the various long sentences, you know, that everyone learns in Greek one that, you know, this is a, 
you know, it, it failed an English grammar test because the sentence goes on and on and on and on. Uh, but this is actually part and parcel of that kind of elaborate, ornate, uh, kind of almost floral type aspect here uh, to what Paul is doing. And many have remarked with Ephesians that it is a beautiful letter um, that has soaring heights. That it, I mean, I'm thinking of all the descriptions that I read in commentaries, right? It's the crown jewel, right, of, of Pauline thought. Well, all that is a, is a, is a distillation of the rhetorical um, process of Asiatic rhetoric um, that we see there. And again, as we talked about earlier, you know, Paul is not a one-hit wonder. Um, he's actually, um, he might not have as many hits as Paul McCartney, but, you know, he has a good number of things in his repertoire that he can change it up, he can write in different ways, and he can he can go for it when he needs to. And something like Ephesians, that letter that we call Ephesians, um, I think does that. When you mentioned uh, earlier the the three species of rhetoric, forensic, deliberative, and epideictic, basically, Paul's not much using forensic rhetoric. Mm -hmm. he's, he's using deliberative primarily because he wants to get them to change their belief or behavior or do something in the near future, hence deliberative rhetoric. But sometimes, like in Ephesians, He's he's going to focus on something that's true already in the present, but needs to be amplified. And and epideictic rhetoric is all about amplification of things that should be praised or things that should be blamed. And that's just beautifully being done in in Ephesians of he's he's lifting up. Here's the nature of the church. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, et cetera, et cetera. And mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and he does it in a beautiful way. Not accidentally, we have a little piece of epideictic rhetoric in 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage. Mm -hmm. Why all of a sudden does the rhetoric change? Because Paul is done what is called a, you know, a, a diversion uh, to a topic that he thinks will unite the way they use their gifts. They need to use their gifts in love. So he, he does this little peon of praise that gets read at weddings which is pretty hilarious since it's not about marital love. It's about love between Christians in general, you know, and uh, in the body of Christ. So, but uh, yeah, he's very skilled. And, and that even includes when you get to something like the pastoral epistles as well, because here we have elementary rhetoric. Uh, here we have that back to basics for Timothy and Titus. And I honestly, I mean, my opinion would be that these letters were written down by by Luke, who's with Paul at this point at the end. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and it's not an accident that there are 42 words in the pastoral epistles that occur, occur nowhere else in the New Testament except in Luke-Acts, including the way that, that Luke likes to call Jesus the Savior, which is not typical of Pauline rhetoric. I mean, there, there are lots of little things like this. But to me, the big aha moment, even in regard to the pastoral epistles, is what we've got is incomplete syllogisms. That's what we've got. You need to be able to fill in the blank. And that, that reflects an audience that knows how to, uh, Timothy or Titus, who knows how to do that. He knows how to do that. And so it's not a full-fledged argument. It's not a full-fledged series of arguments. It's a logical exposition to help Timothy and Titus in what they're doing. And once again, listeners, if you go to uh, Aristotle's rhetoric, his long section on uh, enthymemes is what Ben's referring to here. Uh, these are the right. syllogisms mm -hmm. in which the uh, conclusion mm -hmm. remains unstated because 
uh, you know, the N and the meme, uh, you know, both refer to the fact that you are drawing on resources that your audience already has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a fill in the blanks approach. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, Ben, our listeners have this good fortune as they listen to this. Uh, our time today won't let us treat the uh, Catholic epistles, as they generally get called, at length. But uh, hooray, they get to uh, read about that when they go and get your book. But I do want you to address this real quick before we move on to uh, the last few books of the New Testament. What good reasons do we have for reading James and Hebrews and the non-Pauline epistles as texts mainly shaped by spoken rhetoric rather than mainly shaped by the conventions of written epistles. You've already mentioned that we really don't have written manuals of letter writing yet, but as far as their form, what points to rhetoric when it comes to these letters? Well, first of all, I would say that um, with Hebrews and especially with 1 John, we're dealing with sermons. We're not dealing with discourses. Mm-hmm. And and sermons have uh, an ancient shape just as they have a modern shape. I mean, and the interesting thing about ancient sermons is they're never like just sort of uh, take this snippet of a verse and this snippet of a verse and put them together and let's preach a sermon. It, it's not like, you know, we, we've got three points, a poem and a, and a joke, and now we've got a sermon. That's not how ancient sermons work. And so the first point of orientation, especially with something like Hebrews or or First John, is you need to ask, well, what kind of sermon is this? And what is it trying to accomplish? And who's the audience? Because audience is all important for it to be a word on target as a sermon. And in case of Hebrews, it's Jewish Christians in Rome that are persecuted, prosecuted. Some of them might even be executed. And he's trying to give them things so that they will not sort of crawl back into the woodwork of Judaism, cease to be followers of Christ. That That's what he's trying to accomplish in that sermon. He's, he's saying, don't do it. First uh, John is an amplification on certain basic themes over and over and over again. The theme of love, the theme of uh, truth and fidelity, those kinds of things. And James is also a sermon, but it's a synagogue sermon. It's a sermon that you could hear in a synagogue. Uh, and again, it's, it's based around four or five major themes, like taming the tongue and various things like that. And uh, it's written to Jewish Christians in the diaspora. That's who James is writing to. Well, when you begin to think about those documents as more like sermons and less like either discourses in Paul's letters or modern epistles, because they definitely aren't modern epistles at all, well, then you're beginning to get the picture. I mean, and it answers some questions. For example, Hebrews doesn't mention, there's no epistolary prescript, doesn't mention an author, etc. What's up with that? Neither does 1 John. 1 John has 0% epistolary features, none. Not at the beginning, not at the end, not in the middle, nowhere. Why is that? These are sermons. They are not letters. So, you know, knowing, uh, recognizing what kind of literature you're dealing with is the key to beginning to unlock what's happening in them. Well, Jason, I am losing my breath flying through the New Testament at this clip, but we Mm -hmm. are at the last book, the Apocalypse. 
Uh, in addition to examining the brief letters to the seven churches of Asia, uh, this book offers a reading of the visions in chapters 4 through 22 that render them as a single literary sequence of prophetic oracles or prophetic uh, my visions. We'll just stick with that word. Um, how does that reading differ from what's on offer in some other commentaries and other books on Revelation? Yeah, I think one of the big ones is that, you know, we're trying to uh, analyze this document according to its ancient kind of rhetorical uh, standards rather than, you know, some sort of modern um, kind of forced upon the text reading um, that, you know, more popular versions uh, tend to do. Um, and I think what we try to stress in there that, you know, those letters are not optional to the seven churches, um, that it actually forms how we ought to read the rest of the document as well, and that you can begin to trace things uh, through that. Because uh, oftentimes when people think about Revelation, they think about four through the end, right, uh, rather than the letters. And they go, no, there's a whole piece there. And of course, there was a part of scholarship that thought those were added on later. Um, but these are actually integral to what John is, John is doing. And so I think the rhetorical, you know, things that John is doing is certainly of a whole nother level. Um, you know, this is, as I tell my students, this is the final exam that really does. And it's comprehensive because he assumes that, you know, so much about what's going on before that this is not uh, easy, which I always find to be fascinating. There's so much uh, fascination with one of the most difficult texts in the new Testament. Um, and there's this over fascination with it in some circles, um, which is daunting because it's, it's not an easy text. And obviously history has been littered with, you know, false attempts to understand uh, the document. Um, but yeah, I think that the rhetoric of that um, and is, is something that, you know, is worth, worth unpacking. Well, the other thing to be said about this is that even our Protestant forebears were daunted by this. Cal the only New Testament book Calvin refused to write a commentary on is Revelation. He basically said, non cognosco, I don't understand it. No, I, I remember asking my seminary librarian why we didn't have his commentary on that one when we had all the others, and he had to very patiently explain to me that, uh, no, he actually didn't ri write one. And, and if you read uh, Wesley's notes on the New Testament, when you get to the book of Revelation, there's a there's a proviso up front where Wesley says, I don't say that this is the definitive interpretation of the book of Revelation. I'm crib cribbing from the noble Bengalia, from, from Johannes Bingel in Germany, who seemed to give a better interpretation than most of the others I read. You know, um, that's not what I call a definitive throwing down, throwing down the gauntlet, you know. Um, and, and there's a good reason for this. It's early Jewish apocalyptic prophecy. Mm -hmm. And if you don't understand the nature of visionary prophecy, like you have in Ezekiel or Daniel or a little bit in Zechariah, and then the whole development of that kind of prophecy, you are out to lunch with this book. Uh, and, you know, it, it's interesting that the early church fathers who came from the Jewish tradition who understood this, they were all millenarians. Papias was a millenarian. Tertullian was a millenarian, etc. They took seriously Revelation 20. They, they weren't dispensationalists. They didn't believe in a rapture, but they certainly believed that when Christ came back, there's going to still be work to be done. There's th still things to be accomplished. And, you know, I think Paul even hints at this in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. So they took it seriously, but they knew 
that visionary rhetoric involves lots of analogies. It's like, it's like, it's like, because you can't give a literal description of God's appearance. Come on. And that human language is limited. It just doesn't work. You know, read Ezekiel 1, his description of the throne chariot vision. It was 42 times he says it was like, which means it's also unlike, right? <laughs> so so, something it, like someone who looks like he might be sitting on a throne, maybe. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it's not literal. So I have to tell you this story really quickly. I was uh, in the mountains of North Carolina riding my dad's uh, 55 Chevy in 1968, I guess. Neil Armstrong had just walked on the moon. It's August. And the car conked out. The clutch blew up. So I'm going out of the Blue Ridge Parkway, down uh, a ramp into a Texaco station. They couldn't fix it. So my buddy and I, we decided to hitchhike back to High Point, which is in the middle of the state, right? We got picked up by two really ancient people in an old 48 Plymouth wearing jet black. And my friend Doug, who has spent the rest of his life as a lawyer arguing with people, said, well, what did you think about Neil Armstrong walking on the moon and all those beautiful pictures of the, the roundness of the earth and the blue and all of that? And the, the driver said, that's all fake. It's a Hollywood stunt. And Doug, not recognizing invincible ignorance, says, well, why in the world do you think that? And the guy says, it says in the book of Revelations, anybody that starts a sentence like that with Revelations S on the end, just don't listen to anything else they say. <laughs> you know, says in the book of Revelations, the angels will stand on the four corners of the earth, can't be round if it's got four corners. Now, can it, mister? Now, what was the problem with this gentleman? It's not that he took Revelation seriously, nor that he believed it had a substantive message. It's that he was reading it in light of his flat earth theology as if that's what Revelation is teaching. But it's not teaching cosmology, it's teaching theology about the nature of God. And so he didn't know what kind of document he was reading. But of course, this is a chronic problem with the book of Revelation. Oh, indeed. Oh, indeed. Guys, I want to end with a, a question uh, that's a little bit off topic for your book, but hopefully it'll be uh, close enough in the neighborhood that uh, you'll still enjoy it. Um, the book ends with an image drawn from Augustine's reading of Exodus, uh, which strikes me as just the sort of ending this kind of book should have. So in... Uh, on Christian teaching or De Doctrina Christiana, depending on whether you like to transliterate or translate it, uh, Augustine calls on Christians to, quote, plunder the Egyptians, end quote, uh, to use the power of rhetorical education in order to do battle for the truth. I teach this text every other year to my history of rhetoric students. The hmm. saying is from Exodus 3.22, and Augustine applies it not to material gold or silver, but to the liberal arts, including rhetoric for Christian preachers. Your final chapter holds that the New Testament itself does not hesitate to plunder the Egyptians, and your book has shown a hundred different ways that the books of the New Testament do just that. Here's my question, and I'd like to hear uh, Ben tee off on it first and then Jason. What Egyptian gold, if any, from the most recent past 151 years, just to posit Nietzsche's first big book as the starting point, what recent gold would you call on our educated listeners to plunder? Ben, you go first. 
Uh, are you do you mean from the New Testament or from education in general? Uh, from from uh, from the world of education generally, but from the most recent century and a half. What should we Christians learn? Well, I would say that one of the things that has been helpful, uh, really helpful in the last 50 years, especially, is the study of ancient literacies and the nature of oral cultures, the nature of oral cultures. How do they how do sacred texts work in oral cultures? How do they work? Because they don't work the same way. 30 percent of the communication is what you hear. Alliteration, assonance, rhythm, rhyme, etc. Well, all of that's lost in a translation or just looking at a naked text, you know, a few bunch of words to run together. So orality studies, ancient literacy studies, uh, they have helped a lot. Uh, and, and that applies across the board to any kind of ancient documents in understanding what's going on with ancient documents. Jason, what 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 should what should we plunder? Yeah, I think kind of going along with that, uh, certainly agree with all those things being uh, mentioned. Uh, I think one of the ones that is most helpful is the within that is the nature of these as persuasive communities. Um, I think as we think about kind of community formation and what makes uh, to kind of use a, a modern term, but you know the common good work. You know, I think Paul and rhetoric kind of have dual aims there that the, there are ways that people need to be persuaded and not commanded um and that works from a whole range of domain from moral topics to uh, economic topics to um voting rights uh, i think there's a lot to be gained to be plundered from how do we find common good amongst the community of, of difference uh, and, and the early christians are right there in the center of that galatians 328 they bring a lot of disparate people into the same room um, and try to forge a common life uh, together. Um, so that isn't necessarily a book or a domain, but I think it's a practice um, that we need to be kind of aware of as we go forward into our own future uh, and how we live in a world that the apostles perhaps never imagined of Christianity in the public square. Um, I think there's a lot to be gained from persuasion um, that this is, uh, to quote Augustine, right, the good, the true, and the beautiful, uh, that there is something persuasive about the Christian message for all. Um, and so, yeah, I think that's like a practice I think we can draw from the last 150 years. Yep. Very good. Very good. Well, friends, I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation. And uh, so in the spirit of hospitality, I'm going to let each of you have a last word. Uh, you know, we'll start with Jason, and then we'll go with Ben. What do you want our listeners thinking about rhetoric, New Testament studies, or whatever else as we head for the door? Yeah, I think our book, if anything, helps people kind of uh, re-question some of those assumptions, at least maybe in uh, New Testament studies, of the ability of the authors of the New Testament. What were they up to? And I think we've set that bar a little bit low. Um, and I think our book helps kind of re-situate them as formidable persons um, who give us these documents that have, you know, lasted for 2,000 years. We're still reading them. Um, you know, there's very few books uh, that can have that kind of uh, pedigree. Um, and so I think realizing that rhetoric helps us unpack and explain these these texts. And, and for preaching and for teaching, um, I think there's just more to be gained by doing that. And I would say that if you really analyze this, Edwin Judge was absolutely right when he said this movement was led by socially more elite persons. <laughs> in terms of their education 
That's mm -hmm. why we have 27 documents mm -hmm. that uh, form the New Testament. It was not led by a bunch of illiterate fishermen. Mm -hmm. Even when we have a fisherman like Peter producing a beautiful document like First Peter, he says, I wrote this through Sylvanus. That mm -hmm. is, Syl this is Sylvanus's rhetoric, uh, translating this into a, a usable form. Mm -hmm. So we need to not have an intellectual attitude about the early writers of the New Testament. They were, as Jason said, would be in the top 10% of the educated people of their culture. And those were the people who were leading the movement. Ben, Jason, thank you for joining me on Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you, Nathan. Thank Listeners, you, thank you for downloading and thank you for listening in. The book is New Testament Rhetoric from Cascade Books. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.